You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, so we turn our attention to Genesis chapter 1 once again. Um, as we continue through the creative week, I want to continue to strive to point our attention to the things that we learn about God in the midst of his creation. And so, you know, we could spend a lot of time just delving into the science uh, of what we see here in Genesis chapter 1 and the um, the things that, that we can understand about our universe. And yet what I want us to continue to focus back on is the purpose that Moses had in writing the book of Genesis and why God led Moses to write the book of Genesis, that there was uh, the intentionality there of, of calling Israel to follow the one true God and, 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 and writing Genesis in such a way that they would not be tempted and would not fall prey to worshiping the other gods that they were going to be introduced to in the promised land. And so ultimately I want our time in Genesis 1, specifically in this creation week, I want it to be a time that points us to who God is and, and why we worship him the way that we do and why we treasure him the way that we do. And so I'm excited about um, continuing our discussion on God's creative week. We turn our attention to verse 6 this morning as we begin to look at days 2, 3, and 4 of creation. We saw last week the, the creation of light. And in verse 6 it says, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Let's pray together. Father, as we turn our attention to your word, I pray that you would encourage us this morning, help us to better understand uh, your creation, your purpose for creation, and how it should shape our understanding and view of who you are. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We said just from an overview of the creation week perspective that ultimately God's wanting to communicate to those that read, specifically at that time the children of Israel, but moving forward all of his children that come back to the book of Genesis, that he is better than all the other gods that are introduced to us by this world. That any other object of worship that's out there 
that Yahweh is far supreme and far superior to any other God that could demand our worship. Genesis is written to show us that the miserable state of humanity, the condition that our earth is in, is not due to any flaw in the way way God created. That ultimately God creates a good creation that mankind rebels in, and therefore the entire universe is subjected to this curse and anxiously long and waits for Jesus to return to make things right. We said that creation starts off with some with uh, without form and void. The Bible tells us in verse two that there was a formless aspect to creation. There was an empty aspect to creation, and God prepares over these coming days a a a, a land that is. Um, that is made for the habitation of animals and for man. That, that God takes a formless and void um, earth, shapes it and molds it and makes it into a place that's thriving, that is, that is prepared for man and woman to, to rule and reign in. And God gives them authority, as we're going to see, in that garden. In days one through three, God specifically gives form to his creation he creates the light, he, the light, he creates the sky, he creates the land. And then in days four through six, he fills those voids with celestial bodies, with, the, with the, um, the animals in the sky, with the animals on the earth, with the animals in the sea. And then last week we talked about the importance of light that God creates on day one, that, that ultimately God uses physical light to illuminate his creation so that mankind can see it, so that mankind can worship in the midst of being able to observe what God creates. That the heavens declare the glory of God, the Bible tells us, but in order for us to see that glory, God creates light so that it's illuminated for us. But we spent a lot of time last week talking about the spiritual significance of light, that God uses uh, the concept of light to communicate so many spiritual truths to us, um, that ultimately God uses light to illuminate our hearts. He uses Christ to shine into our dark hearts, uh, to, to reveal to us our sin, to reveal to us our need for a Savior. In the midst of, of doing that, God reveals himself to be a father of lights that doesn't change. That there's, there's no darkness in the midst of who God is, that light dwells with him, and that light is always associated with the things of God. And so over and over in the New Testament, we see that if we're followers of Jesus, that we're supposed to be associated with things that are of the light, uh, that things that come out of the darkness, things that, that do not remain hidden, that, um, that we're following the light, that we're allowing God's word to illuminate our path. Over and over and over again, we see that light is always associated with the things of God and that ultimately it points us to the future victory of Jesus. The Bible tells us that darkness cannot overcome Jesus, that he's saving us from darkness, and that ultimately Revelation says he will be the final light. And Isaiah 50 and John 3 both warn us against following after our own light, following after our own wisdom, and also cowering in the darkness of our sin. The Bible calls us as Christians to come to the light, to run to the light, to allow God to draw us out of the light. And then I challenged you last week at the end that in the midst of God filling his his creation that was without form and void, that he's also doing that in a spiritual sense, that he takes us as, as individuals, and he is filling us in, our, in, the, in the process of our sanctification. That he takes an individual who, who is without form and void, saves that individual, and begins to create new life in that individual. And he's also doing that corporately within us as a church family. That he's taking a church plant 
that was without form and void, and he is raising it up, I believe, to do a great work for his kingdom. That he's filling our church with individuals who are going to be called up and raised up to serve faithfully, both here, in this area, and around the world. And we now turn our attention to day two, three, and four, starting there in verse six. What we find here in this passage is that we serve the God of time, weather, and agriculture. What we see here is God creating time and weather and agriculture and showing his sovereignty over all three of these. In days one through three, God takes a formless earth and creates a hospitable environment for mankind. As we already saw in day one, God creates light. But over the course of these next couple of days, God creates an earth and a sea and a sky for his creatures to inhabit. God creates time, weather, and agriculture. And over and over and over again, we see in God's creative work that he declares it good. So I want us to to think about that concept for a minute. What does it mean for God to declare his creation good? What do you think that he means when he declares it to be good? What's the the meaning behind that statement? When God evaluates what he he has created, what he has put in motion, he says that it's good. What What does he mean by that? Any thoughts on that? What does God mean by it was good? Okay. Okay. Purposeful. Any other thoughts on what it means for God to declare his creation good? Okay. Any other thoughts on what it means for creation to be good in the eyes of God? Okay. At what point does God declare something not good in the midst of this week? At what point does he evaluate and say it's not good? Yeah, when 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 he initially creates Adam, he assesses it and says it's not good that the the, the, the creation of, of, of man is not good right now because there's still something lacking. And so I think it does carry the idea of purpose. I think when God evaluates and says that it's good, it means that the thing is operating according to its purpose. That, that God has created something and it is operating according to its purpose. That it's good. It's doing what it was intended to do. And God can declare that thing good and so what we see in the midst of this creation is that god creates time and weather and agriculture and all these things are declared to be good that the the sun the moon the stars the plants the earth the atmosphere the the seas the waters everything is doing what it's supposed to do it's responded to god's word it's serving the purpose that god has given to it but obviously when sin comes into play that god's creation I believe, becomes no longer good in the sense that it is not fulfilling its purpose like it was intended to do. That's why we see the hope in Romans 8.21. 
that while we wait for Jesus to come back so that we get new bodies, creation longs to be put back the way that it's supposed to be. It says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So if we think about things being good based on them fulfilling their purpose, we can see that when sin enters, all of creation becomes not good. That it's not fulfilling the purpose that God intended for it to have, especially with us as human beings. That if we were to, if we were created to declare God's glory, to reflect God's glory, but we're now born into sin, we're not born fulfilling the purpose that was given to us at creation. And so God is rescuing back his creation for his purposes. He is rescuing back a broken creation, a creation that is deviated from his goodness. He's rescuing it back to himself so that it can fulfill the purposes that he intended for it. We can see the breakdown in our weather and our agriculture. Um, there, there are plenty of places on the planet that are not producing plants and, and trees the way that it was intended to do. We, we are subjected to deserts, to ice caps where, where there is no life, where there, where there is no possibility of producing life there. Um, we, we can see the breakdown in the, in the weather and the way that storms are very destructive. Storms bring destruction. They bring death. Our, our creative order is not working the way that it was intended to do. And that's so important for us to, to recognize because that's one complaint or that's one charge that a lot of people have against God. When, when we're presenting the gospel, we're presenting creation, they want to draw on the fact that a good God allows bad things to happen. And again, God writes Genesis 1 with the purpose of us realizing it's not because of the way I created it. What we see going wrong is not because of a flaw in the creative order. It's based on man's rebellion. And that's so important for us to be able to recognize, realize, and point people to. When they're dissatisfied with God, they're dissatisfied with how he's ruling and running things, and we see death around us, we see decay around us, and we, we identify and recognize the fact that this isn't, this isn't good. And God would not have declared this good. What he declared good was a world without sin, a world that was functioning the way that it was supposed to, that was fulfilling its purpose the way that it was supposed to. And we deviated from that. On day two, God begins to create, and God creates what we would term our atmosphere. He says in verse 6, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Your, your translations may have other words used here. Uh, the ESV uses the word expanse. You may have the word firmament in your, um, in, your, in your translation. Maybe the word atmosphere is used there. Anybody else have a different word that's used in, in your translation for what God's creating here on day two? Or does that cover everybody's? Okay, so ultimately God is creating a, a atmosphere. He's creating a breathable environment, essentially. He, he's taking a, a world that we've already described as a dark, watery environment. Remember, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. So we know that in God's initial creation on day one, there was a formless, voidless, watery planet that he speaks light into. And now God comes back on day two 
and begins to create some separation there so that life can actually exist. And so he takes this watery, watery planet and separates it and creates a, uh, a space there where life can exist. And so God takes the waters and raises a portion of those waters into our atmosphere. It's what separates us from other planets. We have, a, we have an environment, an atmosphere that, that produces oxygen where we can survive, where life can survive. When we examine some of these other planets, they lack that. They lack that type of atmosphere that would allow life to survive. God creates this atmosphere on day two. He separates the waters by raising some above the earth and leaving some on the earth. And he calls this atmosphere heaven. He calls it heaven. Now, this isn't the heaven that we think of a lot of times when we hear that word. The Bible describes different levels of heaven. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about being caught up in the third heaven. So if we think of the term heaven as layers, the first heaven would be what we can look up and see in the sky, our atmosphere. The second level of heaven would be outer space, the the place where the celestial bodies are contained. And then uh, most likely the third heaven being where, where we think of Christ's physical body being today, where we think about our loved ones being today with Jesus in heaven, in God's dwelling place. And so yet he labels this heaven, but it's, it's important that we recognize he's not creating that realm. He's creating what we look out and see today as our atmosphere, as our sky. God is creating this breathable air for his creation. God keeps the waters continually separated today, and we're going to talk in a minute about how what we see today is probably not what was originally created, but even in the midst of the fallenness of creation, God continues to maintain that separation of the waters, right? You leave a cup of water outside for a couple of days, you're going to come back and realize that that water is steadily decreasing in that cup for evaporation purposes. God continues to maintain that separation of water. He has has created natural laws that keep that separation, that keep our atmosphere in play so that we can live here, so that we can continue to breathe the air that we need to sustain ourselves. God keeps that separation for us even today. But what was this water that was originally put into the sky? Uh, It could be in reference to the clouds and and water vapor that we we see today. Um, It's been estimated there's approximately... I'm going to try not to throw around a bunch of big numbers and, and terms and phrases that you're not going to remember, but there's approximately 54 trillion, 460 billion tons of water in our atmosphere right now. I mean, that's, I mean, I don't even know how to fathom that number. 54 trillion, 460 billion tons of water. That's not even gallons of water. That's just tons of water. So I don't even have a good visual picture of what a ton, a ton of water looks like. Um, that would essentially, if all that was to come crashing down right now, it would essentially cover the entire earth one inch deep everywhere. So when you think of it that term, it's still not a ton of water, I guess, if we're only an inch deep everywhere. But in the annual year of rainfall and snowfall, um, it's estimated that the entire earth would be covered three feet deep if we were to take all of that and spread it out all over the world. So that evaporation process that God allows where, where water is constantly going up and down and providing what we need for us. There's a lot of creation scientists that, that believe, and I'm prone to think this way too, that when God created uh, his original earth and created it in this original environment, that there was um, some type of water canopy that surrounded the earth 
uh, that, that it's more than what we see today, that there was something put in place that actually came crashing down as part of the flood, um, that the amount of water that would have been needed to submerge the entire earth is not your typical rainstorm. And so a lot of creation scientists believe that, um, that the, the earth was surrounded with some type of water canopy, more water than what we see today, that still allowed light to pass through it, uh, but that in doing so that it created really the perfect living environment for mankind. That if this is possible, and again, this is a lot of speculation because we can't prove a lot of this, but it would have provided a a hothouse or a greenhouse type of environment. The climate would have been regulated to to ultimately create a perfect temperature globally. That there would have been heat everywhere, and that it would have been a perfect tropical environment, which would have allowed a lush environment all over the planet, so that as man was commanded to spread out and to multiply, and animals were called to multiply, that there would have been plenty of vegetation because of the type of environment that God had created. No deserts or ice caps, lush land everywhere. This does help explain some of the tropical conditions that are found in our Arctic fossil records. So uh, the, the fossils that they find in some of our polar ice caps seem to demonstrate a tropical environment being there before whatever caused that mass freezing. Um, And and I think the the global flood can explain that from a Christian perspective, that when the water came crashing down, that it changed our environment, and then when the floodwaters began to recede, the climate was drastically different. And we'll talk more about that when we get to the flood. But looking at how creation was originally made, This type of environment would have allowed the humans before the flood to live longer. Now, ultimately, we know God intended for them to live forever. But because of sin, death is introduced into the world. But even before the flood, man is living hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, far longer than we live after the flood. You see the life expectancy drop off drastically after the flood. If this water canopy was, in fact, in existence It would have shielded man from the harmful UV rays. There would have been better health, longer life. There would have been no wind storms, the type of storms that we see that do cause such destruction today. We also see in 2 Peter 3, 1 through 7, that in the midst of creation, God had created the world in such a way where it could be judged by water. In 2 Peter 3, it says... um, Verse 5, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So Peter references the fact that had you gone back at that time, you would have looked around and said, if God ever wants to judge the planet, he's going to do so through water. It's what scientists say is true today, that if if the world is going to come to an end, it's probably going to be attributed to some type of fire. that's, that's, That's in direct correlation with what Peter says, that we can look at our planet today and see that. And if you watch some of these National Geographic shows, these educational shows, and they talk about top 10 ways that the earth could end, 99.9% of them have to do with fire. Comets hitting, volcanoes erupting. It's very consistent with what God's word has to say. God creates this atmosphere. He may have created it with, with, a, with an absolutely perfect environment that we have a hard time even realizing today. What we see is a post-flood 
climate, a post-flood environment. It's hard for us to know exactly what things were like prior to the flood. But we get a little bit of glimpse of that maybe in Genesis 1. As God creates this atmosphere and separates these waters above from the waters below. I think the the big implication for us, though, is what we see here is this, this emphasis is placed on God saying something and it being done exactly as he commanded. This is not a natural process that seems to play itself out. It's God separating these waters and he commanding them to be separated and creation responding to his commands. That's the big implication, I think, there in day two is that God says something and it happens and these waters begin to separate at his command. What we see in day three is that God creates dry land and plants. Turning our attention to day three in verse nine, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. God creates the dry land and the plants. Defining that, God raises the continents and sprouts plants and trees. He raises the continents and sprouts plants and trees. In the creation of the dry land, it's important that we note that it's also the creation of the minerals, the rock, the fertile soil that we've come to know. We also see God creating here on day three in a mature state where these plants and trees are are ready to produce fruit. They're ready to produce seed where more plants and trees can spring up. God raises the continents and sprouts plants and trees. Again, he's filling that that form or he's he's shaping that formless environment. Day four, five and six, he's going to fill it. But he's, he's, he's setting his canvas out. He's setting his canvas. He's creating that light. He's separating the waters. He's creating dry land now. His, his canvas is almost complete to where he can now begin to fill it with what we see in days five and, and six, or days four, five, and six. In the creation of dry land, it's been speculated, and it's very possible that when God originally created, that he created one giant land mass that was eventually broken up as part of the flood judgment. There's a there's scientists, creation scientists and evolutionists that will agree on the fact that, that the, the continents seem to have been uh, far closer together than they are now. That over time they have, they have drifted as part of the, uh, and this is stuff that I really just don't understand, but with the platonic movements of the, of the earth that these things have continued to separate. But both scientists on, scientists on both sides um, seem open to the idea that uh, it's very possible that our continents originally were all together as one landmass, um, and that it, again, as a result of sin, again as a result of man refusing to spread out um, as God has commanded him to do, that God has necessarily forced man to spread out by by the um, the changing of the landmass that He originally created. Continuing on there in um, day three. Verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day. It's important to note, and we've discussed this already some, that the plants originate from the earth and not from the water. This contradicts evolution. 
Evolution teaches that, that everything flows out of marine life, that everything began in a, in a watery substance, that life uh, began to produce in that watery substance, and everything comes from the ocean. Everything comes from the sea, and yet God is very clear here that the earth produces these uh, these, these types of vegetation, that it doesn't evolve from the ocean, that it comes from the dry land that God has created here. It's also God's good provision that he creates with the ability to reproduce. What we see time and time again is that the basic command with the plants, with the trees, with the animals, with the, with the birds in the air, with the fish in the sea, with the, the land animals, and then ultimately with Adam and Eve, the command over and over is to reproduce yourself. To reproduce yourself. That's the basic command for all living creatures. And what we see is that each living thing is giving us, given a seed inside of it to reproduce. Right? God creates the plants with the ability to reproduce. He creates the birds with the ability to reproduce. The fish with the ability to reproduce. Adam and Eve with the ability to reproduce. He creates that seed within each one of these, these uh, living things. He creates it with the ability to reproduce and commands that his living creatures reproduce plants were created to produce after their kind this is a deviation from evolution because evolution necessitates a break it demands that one kind comes from another this is where even the theistic evolutionists have some difficulties here because god is creating these things and he's limiting their ability to reproduce he's setting boundaries on the reproduction you cannot produce something different than you are the reproduction is tied to the genetic code. We know this from science with the DNA, that there's certain things you just can't produce. You only produce after your kind. And we'll talk more about this when we get into the creation of man, but this has such spiritual significance for us as well, that we're commanded to reproduce both physically and spiritually. And it goes back to the fact, too, we cannot reproduce something that we aren't, right? Like we can't reproduce uh, something more spiritually mature than us. And so that's why we're always so so often trying to draw you back to the responsibility that you have to grow individually and to disciple other people, knowing that you have to keep growing if you're going to grow others. We reproduce ourselves. The, the basic command is physically. We're, we're commanded, man and woman, to come together for the, for the reproductive process. But even in the midst of that breakdown where creation doesn't function the way that it's supposed to, individuals that can't have children, we're, I believe we're called for that adoption. We're, we're called to adopt, to bring people into our life that we can reproduce spiritually, even if we can't reproduce physically. And that ability to reproduce applies both to singles and to married couples. You know, Chris isn't here, and he's, he's probably glad because it's always easier to, to brag on Chris when he's not here because he gets embarrassed. But, you know, I told Chris last Father's Day that, that he is... Uh, such an exceptional father because he's a father to so many that are fatherless. And not just here in the United States, but overseas. And God continues to give him children in the midst of being childless as an individual. And Chris has embraced the responsibility to reproduce himself. He's reproducing himself and other people. And so that call applies to all of us. And again, we'll talk more about that when we get into the creation of man and woman. But here we see the plants created with the responsibility to reproduce. The implication here in day three, I believe, is that we see God creates with continuity and stability. God creates with continuity and stability. God creates with the intention of his creation continuing. 
right? He doesn't just create something good and then expect for it to die out and stop. He creates something good and then creates it with the ability to continue, that reproduction. He creates with stability in mind, with continuity in mind. He creates stability there that we can expect what is going to happen in creation, right? We don't we don't ever have to wonder what uh, a man and woman is going to produce. Is it going to be human or is it going to be something different, right? There's stability in how science works and the laws of nature. There's stability in the reproduction process. We can expect that kinds will produce the same kinds. God's a God of continuity. He's a God of stability. We can be thankful for that. And then in day four, God begins to fill his canvas it says in verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night. And to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning. The fourth day. Day four defined here. God produces the sun, the moon, the stars, and the planets. Now you remember God's already created light. And so it seems that God takes this pre-existing light now that he's created on day one. And really begins to shape that and form that into individual bodies of light. So we're, we're not given much information about what light looks like on day one. We're just know, we just know that God creates light and that it does set in motion the day-night concept. And so we talked last week that there is implication there that the earth is already rotating, that there's some type of rotation happening there to where the earth is exposed to this light and at times not exposed to it, creating the day-night, the morning and evening. Here in day four, we start to get into the specifics of how it's going to work moving forward, and God begins to produce the sun, moon, stars, and planets. And he does so for three purposes, according to Moses here in Genesis 1. It says, let them separate, or to separate the day from the night, let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. Purpose number one in God creating these celestial bodies Purpose number one is for separation. For separation. Now, I think it's important, and we're going to spend the majority of our time here. I think it's important for us to see the goodness of God and the necessity of what he establishes here in day four and how much it affects us as his creation. This idea of separation, God designed the day-night cycle so that we can accomplish what we need to. Right? God has, has defined the day-night for us. He's defined what the day is overall for us in terms of the work that we're supposed to accomplish. There were things that God created. There were things that he didn't create on certain days. He accomplished what he was supposed to on each day. And that has such significance for us because I know there's times when, when we feel like that God has given us more than we can accomplish in a day. And yet God has defined the day and night for us. He's, he's put parameters. He's put restrictions. He's also created us in such a way that we can't keep going without finally breaking down and having to sleep and having to rest and having to stop. It's probably a good reminder, too, that oftentimes we push the limits farther than we should. 
Um, as, as I was working last night and studying, and, and it, was, it was getting very late, far beyond the time when the sun has gone down and, and work should seemingly stop. It was a reminder to me even last night that, that God has ordained the day and the night, and that we should probably seek to adhere to that as much as possible, that we, we accomplish what we're supposed to, and then we step back from what we can't accomplish any further for that day, that, we, that it reminds us of our limitations. God is very good in how he's constructed the days. Imagine if our days were three times longer. Imagine if it took three times longer for the sun to rotate. We would necessarily have to restructure our days, right? It wouldn't be natural for us to stop when the sun goes down and to sleep as the sun is down. We'd have to sleep at times during the day. We'd have to work at times during the night. Unfortunately, some of us have that type of schedule where that's the norm, but if the, if the days were any longer than they are, it would radically change our schedules. And God's very good to, to create days based on our energy level and how we're able to accomplish things. God has determined our work patterns, our feeding patterns, and our sleep patterns through this separation. Purpose number two, God creates these celestial bodies for separation, but purpose number two, for regulation. For regulation. God says that they are created to be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Looking at that idea of signs, we know that the way that God has constructed the celestial bodies, that they do work for navigational purposes, right? Ships and and, and vessels can use the the stars, can use the, the consistency in God's celestial pattern for navigational purposes. And before the technology that we have today was available, that was what vessels had to rely on to navigate. They're used for those type of signs. But in addition to that, there's, there's other ways that God's creation, specifically these celestial bodies, are used for signs. In Psalm chapter 8, we know that they become a sign of faith for us. In Psalm chapter 8, it says, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1, 14 through 20, that the invisible attributes of God are made available through creation. The celestial bodies serve as a navigational sign, but they also serve as a sign for our faith. That as we look around and see the glory of creation, it should increase our faith in a God who creates with stability, who creates with continuity. In addition to that, we can use God's celestial bodies and the way that he's created the atmosphere for weather purposes. In Matthew 16, 2, they become a sign for weather purposes. It says, he answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're able to discern physical things by looking to the sky, but they're not able to discern spiritual 
things. Matthew 2, 2 says that they can also be used for prophetic purposes. The wise men coming to Jerusalem saying in Matthew 2, 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. This is not an encouragement to use them for signs for the future in a unhealthy sense. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, we know that God prohibited the use of astrology. In Deuteronomy 18 verse 10, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. A lot of dark art type stuff going on here, and, and some of it seems very innocent, but a lot of it is traced to um, using evil spirits and using evil forces to try to generate uh, perspectives on the future. A lot of it can be tied to the celestial bodies, and God commands his people to stay away from these type of things. So it's not those type of signs that these can be used for. Um, Signs and seasons and days and years, we know that the life on our earth is dependent on the sun and moon being what they are and where they are, right? Like you've heard the stats that if the sun was any hotter or, or any closer or any further away that we would not have a conducive environment for the life that we experience. So God has placed all of the celestial bodies right where they need to be, producing the gases and the heat that they do at the exact levels that they, are, that they need to in order to produce the life that we have here on this earth. Our sun provides warmth. It provides the ability for photosynthesis with our plants. The moon provides the tides that are so important to our ecosystem. The seasons and the weather patterns are determined by the axis and the rotation of our earth. This is so important when we think about our earth in relationship to the sun. So God creates the sun so that we have our seasons and our days and our years. And think about how important it is that we can chart those things and predict those things and know when those things are going to happen. Our seasons and our weather is determined by the axis and the rotation of the earth. This is so critical for the planting of, 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 the planting of, of our crops. That, that farmers rely on knowing when these seasons are coming and going, when it's time to plant, when it's time to harvest. And these are things that they can bank on year after year because of the stability in God's creation. That God has created the seasons. He's created the weather. He's created us to be able to discern those things so that we can continue to use this earth to provide for ourselves. God graciously allows us to prepare for seasonal changes by being able to mark our time. The moon and the phases of the moon help us determine our months, the length of our months. God graciously allows us to mark years so that we can regulate our ability to celebrate and remember past occurrences. Think about how comforting it can be to refer back to our past and be able to celebrate things in our past year after year. We celebrate birthdays. We celebrate wedding anniversaries. We celebrate spiritual uh, history that, that comes and goes each year as we look back and say five years ago, ten years ago. Those are things that we can naturally do. Those are things that we can naturally reference back to, that we have a system of being able to know when it's been a year, when it's been five years. And it's a natural trigger to remind us of those things so that we can celebrate those things. And God has incorporated that into his creation for our benefit, the seasons, the years, not only for the physical 
benefits of, of the crops and the seasons, but also for the spiritual significance, the, the times of celebration that we need as his creation. There's warnings in Scripture, obviously, about overvaluing these celestial bodies that God has created. In Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 19, the big danger of the children of Israel going into this promised land is that they would worship these things. God says in verse 15, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. That same warning can be found in Deuteronomy 17 as well. I think it's significant. We, we talked, we talked in, uh, last week about how God uses, in the midst of creation, he names things. And we said that the ability to name things shows authority over those things. And yet when God creates the sun and the moon, he, he does not name them. He just calls them the greater light, the lesser light. Any insider thoughts as to why God chooses not to name the sun and the moon here, showing his authority over these celestial bodies? Because I think it's significant why he doesn't. Nope. I mean, Adam may have eventually done it, but he doesn't task Adam with that. Why does, why does God choose not to name the sun and the moon here if by naming them he would show his authority over them? Potentially, and the reason for that is what they were already known as in the context of Israel, the, the understanding, the things that they would have referenced them as um, in, in looking outside and saying there's the sun, the terms that they would have used were the proper names for these deities, these gods of the other people. Like That was their understanding. That was their concept. That's the words they used for these celestial bodies. And so God actually shows his superiority over these two celestial bodies by not naming them. Because to name them, he would have had to have used the terms that they were using for these proper names of these deities. And so by, he, by decreasing their importance, by not even giving them names, I believe God shows his superiority to the children of Israel over the sun and over the moon simply by referencing them as the greater light and the lesser light. It's important to note, and, and we'll get into this more when we get to the flood, but in Genesis 8.22, God encourages his creation Encourages Noah and his family. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. That's part of the, that's part of the promise, that's part of the covenant that comes to Noah and his family. That all these benefits, all these things that we gain from day and night, from years and months and seasons, God promises these things will continue. You don't have to worry about anything throwing these things off. You don't have to worry about some celestial comet or asteroid coming into play and affecting what you know to be true. God promises the stability of his creation moving forward as well. 
And then the last purpose here in God's creation of these celestial bodies, number three, for illumination. So for separation, he separates the day and night. For regulation, he gives us signs and seasons and days and years. And then lastly, for illumination, to give light upon the earth. To give light upon the earth. Now this is, I'm going I'm to tell you this because this is awesome. And I, and I saw this earlier this week. So I'm going to try to explain it to you. I'm going to post this on the city so you can actually see how cool this is. Um, but since we don't have TVs or anything yet, we talked about technology last week, this would be a great time for increased technology in our church building. So let's say you took a sheet of paper and you went outside and you held it up to the moon. And let's say you traced a picture of the moon. You traced that outline. Hopefully it would fit on that sheet. Um, so you walk outside, you, you see the moon, you trace it on there. You divide that circle up into ten. So, so you take it and you divide it up into squares, ten squares or whatever. And then you cut out one of those. Okay, so one-tenth the size of the moon. You cut that square out. And then you hold it up to the sky and you find it to where there's no stars in it. Okay, so you just find a, a, a speck, an area of the sky. There's no stars and you're looking through that piece of paper. You're looking through that square. Okay, that's essentially what um, the Hubble telescope did in 2003. Okay, so they found an area of the sky about a tenth the size of the moon to our visible eye. And they pointed the Hubble telescope there for, I think, four months. And they didn't move it. And they allowed the Hubble telescope to take in as much light as it could. And just, just kept absorbing light, just kept taking it in. And what they found is that in that small of a space, that small of a space, there were 10,000 galaxies based on the light that was received. And in each one of those galaxies, there was over a trillion stars in each one of those galaxies. And when you see this picture, I mean, it's just unbelievable. Like all of the stars that we can't see, right? So you're looking up there, it just like a, looks like a square of black. We don't see any light. We don't see any stars in that area. We can look up in the sky and see all kinds of stars, but it was amazing to me to think just how many stars are in existence that we can't see. Billions of light years away. And it gives perspective on how, how big the universe is, how little we are. And I believe that if for no other reason God communicates how big he is and how small we are by creating such a big universe. Many people want to speculate and say, well, there has to be other life out there. Why else would God create such a big universe? Maybe just to show us how big he is and how small we are. But what's, what's really fascinating to me is that you could spend all kinds of time just researching and looking at how many stars and how many galaxies. But look how much attention is given to the stars in Genesis 1 by Moses. It says in verse 16, And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. I mean, that's it. Like, we don't get any more information about the stars. It's just almost an afterthought. And God created stars, too. You know what's crazy? Is that there is like 50 chapters in the Old Testament about how to build the tabernacle. A tent. Like an, an outdoor tent place of worship. God spends 50 chapters talking about it. He says, and made the stars. And that's all we get. And what that tells us, what that reminds us is that the Bible is ultimately a story of redemption. It's a story of how we relate to God, and it's not a science book. And it doesn't answer a lot of our scientific questions. God creates everything that we see for his glory, for his honor, 
But ultimately, he comes back to writing about redemption and the the glory of Christ and his salvation of us. And, And he spends all this time talking about the tabernacle so that all of these things within the tabernacle point us to salvation. It's a good reminder for us as to what the purpose of Scripture is. The implication here in in day four, too, is that God uses the celestial bodies as a teaching tool for us. He uses it as a teaching tool. God is is notorious for for creating things for the simple purpose of of giving us a deeper understanding of spiritual things, right? We, We understand that marriage is created. God institutes marriage to give us a better picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. That it's a tool. It's a teaching tool. Teaching tool. God uses parables all the time to communicate deeper spiritual truths. In, in Daniel chapter 12, God uses these celestial bodies to remind us of our responsibility as believers. It says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. God uses the celestial bodies. He uses the glory of creation, the glory of the stars and the, and the shining of that light. And uses it as a correlation to what we're to be as believers. That we're to shine like stars. That we're to provide that spiritual light in the same way God created celestial bodies to give physical light to this earth. God uses that picture and says, you're to be like stars. You're to be like the celestial bodies. You're to shine the spiritual light on this earth. I've created the celestial bodies to give you the physical light. I've given you all the means to operate on this earth. I've given you an atmosphere. I've given you breathable oxygen. I've given you the times and the seasons and the years so that you can have the crops that you need, so you can have the food provision that you need. And he's tasked us with the responsibility now to shine the spiritual light to the ends of the earth, to proclaim his glory to the ends of the earth. God uses these celestial bodies as a teaching tool, as a reminder for us that we're to be like that spiritually as members of his creation. All right, I want to give you three application thoughts to kind of bring this Back to what does this mean for me as I get ready to leave and start another week, right? Like we, we look at the creative week, and it's cool to talk about the atmosphere. It's cool to talk about potentially a water canopy. It's cool to speculate about the land masses being one. It's cool to talk about how many galaxies are out there. But when it, when it comes down to it, what does this mean for me this week? What does it mean? I don't, I don't have time to look up in the stars and, and contemplate how many galaxies are up there. I've got a busy week ahead of me. I've got trials and temptations that I'm facing. What does this mean for me? Number one, the glory of creation should lead us to view ourselves properly. The glory of creation should lead us to view ourselves properly. What do I mean by that? In Psalms 8, we read the entire chapter, but I want to read to you a couple of verses specifically. In Psalm chapter 8, Verse 3, David says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man 
that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. You know, so oftentimes I feel like people want to question God and question why God doesn't seem to care more about what's going on in their life. Right? Like, like why is God allowing this to happen to me? I, I had a situation this week where in, in prayer time, one of our teachers just confessed how angry at God they were and how they were questioning God and why God was doing this in their life. And I understand that I want to be sensitive because I know probably all of us have gone through seasons of our life where we've felt that way. But David looks at it and says, not, why don't you care more about what's going on in my life? He asked the question, why do you care at all about what's going on in my life? When I look out and see the heavens and the glory of your creation, David says, even without the technology to know how many galaxies are out there, when I just look up and see the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, when I see all that's going on in this universe, I'm left to question, why, why do you care about what's going on in my life? Not, why don't you care more? It, it puts us in our proper place, puts us in our proper perspective. Now, that's not to discount and say that God doesn't care. Look what Job says in Job 38, or what God says to Job in Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. God's talking about what he did, that he separated the waters from the waters, and then he created dry land and told the waters where it could go and where it couldn't go. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? And cause the dawn to know its place? God says, are you responsible for dividing the day and the night? That it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked into the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the path to its home? You know, for you were born then and the numbers of your days is great. God is making a point here that that Job has no right to question him. I don't believe he's trying to be overly sarcastic or rude or or demeaning to Job. I think he's calling him to be reminded of the fact that he hasn't been here since the beginning. That he isn't in charge of everything. That he's not the one that's tasked with working everything for the good of his children. I had two parents this week email me questioning me about um, coaching decisions involving their two sons. They were mad that they weren't getting more playing time and that they didn't get into the game as much as they thought they should on Thursday. 
And I was uh, initially very defensive because I was like, man, you guys have no idea. Like you have, you don't come to practice. You're not a part of what we talk about as coaches. You have no idea what went into the game planning and the decision making about who played in that game. And I could have easily sent them an email and said, who are you? Have you been there since practice since July? Have you seen how lazy your son is and how he doesn't contribute during practice? No. I could have questioned them and not given them answers, but I, I went ahead and gave them the full picture. I said, here's why your son didn't play. Right? Like we're trying to protect him. We were playing against ninth graders, your kids in seventh grade. Um, we, we can't afford to put your son in and put him in harm's way. We have the good of your son uh, in, in our plans for how we played him. Both of them came back and said, man, we are dumb. Like, we should have known that. Like, we, we appreciate you clarifying that, that. That gives us a whole lot more wisdom and insight into what's going on. God does the same thing here with Job. He says, you're, you're not involved in everything. And it's a reminder of our place in God's creation. But it also directs us to his wisdom and his insight and his power that we can trust him. Because God doesn't give Job answers, right? He doesn't clarify for him why he's doing what he's doing in his life. He simply calls Job to trust him. He doesn't tell him. He just says, Job, trust me. I've been here since the beginning. I'm the one that's responsible for all of creation. You can trust me that I'm doing what's right in your life, that I'm doing things for the good of you in your life. So it's a reminder. As we see the glory of creation, it puts us in our place that, that while there's times where we're in our flesh, we want to be mad and question God potentially, it should draw us back to his goodness and the trust that we should have in him. Number two, the power displayed in creation should cause us to fear God by running to him. The power displayed in creation could cause us to fear God by running to him. In Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9, it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Again, the idea of God separating the waters from the waters. Verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The encouragement here, the reminder here, is that God in all of his power displayed in creation, the fact that he commands everything, it should cause us to fear him. But not fear him in the sense that we run away from him, but to fear him in the way that Rahab did. Right? Rahab talking to the, to the, to the two spies in the book of Joshua. She says, I know who your God is. He created heaven and earth. He's all powerful. He's better than our gods. Please take me with you. I'm scared to death of your God. I know that if I run from him, I'm devastated. I know if I stay, I'm devastated. Take me with you to this God that I'm scared of, that I'm fearful of. My only hope is to run to him for mercy. That's what God's creation gives us. It gives us a healthy dose of fear, respect, and awe for this God that we serve. A God that cares so much for his creation. Revelation 14, 6 through 7. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. He said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Then lastly, number three, the goodness of creation should cause us to delight in it, to take responsibility with it, and to praise him for it. 
The goodness of creation should cause us to delight in it, take responsibility with it, and to praise him for it. So the glory of creation leads us to view ourselves properly. The power in creation causes us to fear God. And the goodness of creation causes us to delight in it and to praise him for it. Creation was created to declare his glory. I want to challenge you as we get ready to leave this week that, that you intentionally try to put yourself in a position where you can allow creation to declare the glory of God to you, that you can delight in God's creation this week. Whatever that may look like for you. I've shared with you before that, that I love to get out into creation and to allow myself to meditate on the goodness of God in the midst of enjoying his creation, whether it's through hunting, fishing. I love to be out in God's creation so that I can spend some time in prayer, spend some time reflecting on God's goodness in the midst of creation. I want to challenge you this week to to put yourself into God's creation in some form or fashion, in a way that you can delight in who God is and in the goodness of his creation. Creation is meant to declare his glory. Let's allow creation to declare declare his glory to us. Let's let's allow ourselves to reflect on, on the things that God calls Job to be reminded of. So that it points us to a God that we can trust in, a God that we can be assured is working things for our good and his glory. He's completely in control of everything. The psalmist continually reflect on God's creation. They draw upon God's creation as a means of comfort and encouragement. So how does this translate for this week? Yes, it's cool to talk about the science of creation, but let us see that the creation, the way that God creates, it's meant to encourage us this week. It's meant to point us back to a God that we can trust in, a God that we can worship, knowing that he is faithful to us as his children and that he's going to be faithful this week to us as well. Let's pray together. Father, we do praise you and thank you that you have revealed so much about who you are through your creation. God, as we see how intentional you are to, uh, to create in a way that provides for us, You've created an atmosphere where we can live and breathe. You've created um, uh, dry land for us to live upon. You've created plants, trees to to bear fruit for us to eat. You've created in a way that we're provided for. You've created the celestial bodies so that there's uh, stability within our life. That we know how many hours we have today to accomplish what you have for us. We know at the end of the day that we're going to sleep. We're reminded that we serve a God that doesn't sleep. A self-existing God that is in no need of anything. God, we're thankful for the seasons, the predictability of knowing that you're going to continue to provide for us. Just as you've promised Noah and his family in Genesis 8, the seasons, the days, the years will continue. God, I pray that the glory of your creation would cause us to have a, a rightful fear of you but a fear that causes us to run to you in times when we're prone to question you. That we can see who you are through your creation. That we run to you with our faith and trust. That we're reminded that we weren't there from the beginning. You are far more wise and and supreme than we ever could be. 
that your goodness and the good plans that you have for us are better than anything that we could conjure up on our own. Father, I pray that this week that we would delight in your creation, that we would seek ways to enjoy creation this week, and that rather than worshiping that experience, that we would worship you, that we would be thankful to you for your creation, and that you would allow your creation to encourage us in our relationship with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close today, I want to turn your attention to Psalm 148. I want us to read this together. Rather than singing a closing song, I think it's appropriate for us to turn our attention back to the psalmist who used creation as a means of worshiping God. So we'll close with this today. Just in response to what we've seen in God's word. Psalm 148 says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints. For the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.